But thank you so much for being here. If you could make your way back to your seat and pull out your copy of God's Word and open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If you got a worship guide, the text is in the worship guide, Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. We're going to continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Read with me God's word from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. God, we are thankful for your word. We know we need your word. And so we pray that you'd give us life according to your word this morning. Jesus, we want to follow the way that you are setting for our life. Change our hearts and make us into this kind of person. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> one of the genres of podcast shows and movies that has exploded in the last five to ten years is true crime. I'll admit I'm not always quick to jump into true crime. Uh, I ride around by myself a lot. I'm in this building a lot by myself, and so uh, I get scared quite easily. You can ask my wife. Uh, she scares me often, and I don't always come out looking flattering when I get scared. <clears throat> But nonetheless, just like I'm sure many of you, I've dabbled in some true crime podcasts or some stories, or you've listened to Serial. Uh, I think that was the one that kind of busted everything wide open, and, and you listen to these stories of true crime, and most of these stories are, is this person innocent or guilty? Who did this? And it's telling you a real story, and it's making this seem more like a a fictional show or movie than it is a real-life situation, but one that came across Netflix a few years ago was called Making a Murderer. And it, it was talking about a guy named Steve Avery. And he was arrested for committing murder and was put in prison. And then when he gets out, and Netflix does this incredible special that made everyone go, was he guilty or not? And I watched part of it, and to be honest, I fell off before the end because I just couldn't follow all of the details of the story. But I was thinking about that this week as I was thinking about what does it take to make a murderer? Now, this show on Netflix was trying to say, hey, here's how you make a murderer if you're going to frame someone. If you're going to make it seem like this person did it, maybe here's how you would do it. But I think that same title, Making a Murderer, fits our passage this morning. Making a Murderer. Jesus begins his teaching with a very obvious commandment. One we probably all know, and it seems almost too obvious. Don't murder anyone. Everyone knows we shouldn't murder, but Jesus takes this law down into our hearts by pointing beyond just the action of murder to the attitudes that lead to murder because those attitudes are what make a murderer. So our main idea this morning is that Jesus is teaching us that righteous relationships actually pursue reconciliation. It's not enough to say don't murder. The action, it's not enough to say don't have the attitude that leads to murder. It, it's actually, we need to go all the way to say, let's pursue 
reconciliation. So as we walk through the text, we're going to look at three things. We're going to first look at the acts and attitudes of murder. Jesus expected that his hearers knew this commandment, but what did it actually mean? Next, we'll see the positive side of things, and we'll look at the righteous reconciliation that Jesus tells us to pursue. But then last, we'll look at the reconciliation that Christ himself brings. Reconciliation between us and God, but also us and others. So as we dive in this morning, let's first look at what Jesus starts off with. The act of murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old. Surely, he's thinking to his followers and the people that are listening to him in the Sermon on the Mount. Surely you know this commandment, right? You shall not murder. And if you murder, if you, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Everyone listening surely knew this. And everyone listening was surely grateful for this commandment. Or else they wouldn't be listening to Jesus. If someone had murdered them, they wouldn't be there. It, it almost seems too obvious, almost silly to give reasons for why we shouldn't murder, but Jesus is, is bringing them back to something so obvious. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount we just talked about last week, the, the verses that kind of give a theme for where we're at, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter in the kingdom of heaven. So you've heard that it was said, don't murder. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees certainly followed that law, right? They were probably very committed to not murdering people, as many of us hopefully are. Murder is given as part of the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees knew it, the scribes knew it, the followers of Jesus knew it, because it was obvious. But why not? If you look back in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't give you a reason. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, after the flood. And we see God give a reason for why we shouldn't murder. God's word in Genesis 9 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Murder takes the life of one of God's image bearers. Murder takes the life of someone who bears the image of God. I'm not sure any of Jesus' followers would have argued with the act of murder. But Jesus goes on in verse 22 to say, but I say to you, and this becomes a formula that he uses six times in chapter five. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and he's not erasing the first part. Jesus is surely not saying that murder is okay, but I'm gonna give you a different way to interpret this law. No, no, no. He's saying, yes, this is obviously true, but it's pointing deeper than just that. The scribes and Pharisees were perfectly happy with themselves in light of the command to not murder. They were happy to point to that and say, we follow this to a T. I've never murdered anyone. It seemed easy enough to not murder, but when Jesus gives us the true direction of this easy law, it all of a sudden becomes far more convicting. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister, oh, I've never killed my brother or sister, but been angry? Whoever insults his brother or sister, there's a word used here that's a, that's a borderline swear word in the Greek. Whoever says, you fool, you're, you're mindless, you're not even think. You, you can't even think. You're ignorant. Jesus says it's not enough to just not murder. 
I want you to look at the attitudes that lead to murder. Murder is just an outward act of an inward attitude. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, the sermons that he preached, says, Killing does not only mean destroying life physically, but it means, still more, trying to destroy the spirit and the soul, destroying the person in any shape or form. So the righteousness that Jesus requires in his kingdom is not just outward conformity, constraining yourself to not take the life of someone, but it's actually inward transformation. Not just keeping yourself from killing someone and wringing their neck, but actually inwardly. Not harboring the anger, the insults towards that person. I find myself doing this all the time. I mean, just this week, we went to the pool. Our pool opened May 1st. God bless. It feels like fresh North Georgia spring water. It is freezing. Um, But our kids are having a blast. So we go to the pool one day this week. And we walk in. There's some older kids there, a little bit older than our kids. And there's a, a dad in the corner with an umbrella. And I mean, it didn't take me but three seconds. And I had pronounced judgment on this father. Wearing jeans, I'm going, you clearly didn't plan to swim. You must not care about your kids. You're on your phone. Now, mind you, of course, I was going to get on my phone later, but that didn't matter at the time. I was ready to judge someone else. So I'm judging uh, this man's horrific parenting in a matter of about three seconds walking in, thinking to myself, these poor kids have a father that does not care. Doesn't care enough to wear a bathing suit to the pool. Doesn't care enough to get in and swim with them. They're having to ask him to watch. Well, after spending an hour, hour and a half there, He's a great dad. He was gentle with his kids, probably more gentle than I was that day. He he was fun, and he was helping them resolve conflict together. But the point was, when I got there, it did not take me very long to jump to some really bad assumptions about this person. And I didn't walk over and murder him. But in my heart, going, you fool. Goodness, I... Don't we all do that at different times? I mean, it could be getting cut off traffic. We jump to an assumption about why that person did it, and we are ready to blast them. We may all be very quick to absolve ourselves of murder, but what about those attitudes that eventually give birth to murder? Do we allow those attitudes to fester in our hearts? Where do we find ourselves wrongfully angry with others? How about this phrase, you're dead to me? I mean, isn't isn't that embodying exactly what Jesus is saying? The category that jumped out to my mind most quickly is politicians. For some reason, we feel like we can treat them with the utmost disrespect say things on social media that we would never say to their face. We post things that you would never walk through the door and say to anyone in this room on a Sunday morning. But we think we can slander and spew some of the most horrific hate speech towards public servants because we disagree with their policy stances. Jesus says you might as well be assassinating that politician that you hate. 
And so if we're not just talking about the act of murder, but the attitudes that give birth to murder, we have to take a step back and look at our cultural moment and say that this is what it means to be truly pro-life. Pro-life at a minimum says don't murder. But if you stop there, you've not embraced the pro-life ethic that Christ has talked about in Matthew 5, which is not just don't murder in the womb. It's also don't look upon single, poor, different color mothers that are struggling with decisions that you've never had to make. But if we look after someone has decided to give birth, or we look at someone who's pregnant with, with the insults that Christ talks about, with the disdain, with the say, how, how dare them look for handouts from the government, but I also how dare them, can we have a whole life pro-life ethic from Jesus right here for a minute and say, this is what it means to be pro-life. At a minimum, don't kill people. <laughs> but I say to you, says our Lord, don't insult these people. And as we'll see in a few minutes, proactively reach out to help and reconcile and love and care for. The answer is not just one. Pro-life starts with no murder, but Jesus says not to end there. And I think we fall into our world's trap of feeling like we've got to pick a side. Please, please let's not. Let's pick this side. Because Christ is warning his followers, if you are only committed to outward conformity to rules, you do not belong in my kingdom. If you're content with not killing anyone, good on you. But there's things in your heart that need to be transformed because there are attitudes there that are, if they're left there, if the attitudes are left in your heart, then you'll have what happened tragically in Buffalo, New York. An 18-year-old kid had attitudes towards people that didn't have his skin color and weren't from his country of origin. And he had felt threatened by their immigration to our nation and had posted things and said things about his attitude towards those people and that attitude gave birth to an act of murder where he shot and took the lives of 10 people. Now what was wrong with him was not just the act that committed yesterday, it began in the attitudes that had been formed in him for years leading up to yesterday. And Christ is making a connection between our hearts and our actions. Are we willing to receive that word from him? We can flip open to Matthew 5, 21 and pretty quickly go, don't murder, got it. But are we willing to receive this word from Christ and let him take us deep into our hearts to see where we fall short of the way he points this law down into us? The next thing we see, though, him do in this passage is really interesting because he gives two examples. Neither example are of someone with anger. He doesn't say, so, if you're angry with someone, here's how you resolve it. He actually flips it around and says, if someone has something against you, here's what you should do. 
If someone has something against you, here's what you should do. So the second point this morning is making things right. It's not just the act of murder, it's the attitude, but how do we make things right? See, the righteousness of Jesus' followers are not content to just pacify peaceful situations. We wanna be proactively peacemakers like we saw in the Beatitudes. So he gives these examples. The first example, verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Jesus is God. God is telling you to stop offering a sacrifice, stop worshiping and go make things right. First be reconciled to your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. He's actually advocating that we stop our worship to go make something right with a brother or sister. Now, what does this mean for us? It means we shouldn't try to atone for our evil with doing good. Don't cover our bad by saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm gonna start getting in to church. I'm gonna start giving. I'm gonna start reading my Bible. Why don't you, Jesus saying, why don't you go make things right with the person that you have conflict with? Saul is a perfect example of this in 1 Samuel 15 when God gives him a clear command to not take anything from this people group that had fought against God's people and he says, wipe them out and don't keep anything. And Saul sees things that were pleasant to the eyes. Should always be a warning because that's exactly what the serpent did in Genesis 3. And he says, Wait, why am I going to destroy this stuff? I can use this stuff to donate to the Lord as if he needs our help. To make wonderful offerings and sacrifices. And Man, God could really be glorified if I actually kept this stuff and gave it to him. And what does Samuel say? On behalf of God, Samuel looks at Saul and says, the Lord would rather you obey than make sacrifices to him. Don't try to cover your bad with good works. Don't try to cover relational problems by just continuing to show up and worship. Jesus is saying, go make it right. Both of these examples highlight urgency and decisive action. Some commentators point out the fact that if you're in Jerusalem making a sacrifice, you've probably traveled days, if not weeks, to get there. And if you don't live there, the person you have relational strife with probably also doesn't live there. So he's actually saying, hey, you've traveled a week to get here. Leave your offering on the altar. Go travel another week back home and make things right. Then come back and then make things right again. Inconvenience yourself. Be urgent. Be decisive. But by all means, don't continue to come worship God with blood on your hands, so to speak, of relational problems. Go and make things right. The second example in verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. What's he saying here? Don't let accusations and division build up. It's easy to think about this because he talks about court and judges to think about this in legal terms, but let me give you a slightly different uh, example. What about arguments and disagreements and frustrations that build and build and build in a marriage? Never resolved, never discussed, never reconciled fully, and it just builds 
and the pressure builds and more, more letdown, more frustration, more disagreement. And neither spouse is coming to the other to make things right. And then this comes to divorce court. And all of these things are used against the other. And it's finally brought up, but in a situation of, Your Honor, here's, here's my grounds for divorce. Here's my grounds for alimony. And he, here's my grounds for why we need to be separated. I've watched this happen. With couples that Karen and I looked up to, thought loved each other, did love each other, but didn't follow this act, attitude, progression that Christ points out. Instead, let the attitude build and build and build and never took the urgent, decisive action to go confront the conflict head on and make things right. So if we're gonna try to state Jesus' desires for us positively rather than just don't murder and don't be angry, what he's saying through these examples is not just don't be like this, he's actually saying be a person who reconciles in your relationships. Pursue reconciliation. It's not enough to not murder. It's not enough to just not be angry. We must seek the good of others with the mindset of Philippians chapter two. So here's what Paul says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, basically if you claim to follow Jesus, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What if at the same time we were looking out for the attitudes of murder in our heart, the anger, the insults, and we were looking out for the way we were coming across to others? to be sure we weren't being offensive. We weren't pulling these things out of other people, but like he's saying in these two examples, if your brother has something or your sister has something against you, go and make it right. And this takes a Philippians 2 mindset that's humble, that seeks the good of others, that pursues their interests. It's a lifestyle that's selfless rather than self-seeking, that's aiming to serve others rather than serving self. So how do you respond when you know that someone is not at peace with you? This is pretty much the outworking of the beatitude we talked about a number of weeks back. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is really challenging though. I hate conflict. But you know what makes conflict easier? When I know the person on the other side loves me. And when I have a genuine heart of love for them. Christ is saying, if, if you're going to belong in the kingdom of God, please don't murder anyone. Because <laughs> that is not a reflection of God who is the giver of life. And in fact, it's not just about not murdering, it's about your heart towards people. If we shouldn't murder because people bear God's image, then we should actually love them because they bear God's image. So we shouldn't be harboring these feelings of anger and insult in our heart towards them. And, and, and actually, more than just not harboring the negative feelings, we ought to go pursue them to make peace and to reconcile. 
Now, how is all this possible? How is it possible to live with a Philippians 2 mindset? Well, if you keep reading in Philippians 2, you see that he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's our last point this morning. We're going to see how Christ makes things right. God invites us into obedience, not so that he can give us such high demands and he's excited to slap our hand when we don't measure up. It's not why God gives us commands. Because he's excited to see us fail. He gives us commands, knowing we're not going to measure up, to expose to us how much we need him. Because he wants to expose to us how far our hearts really are from him. He's taking us to the deep places of our hearts to show us what we'd rather obey than to obey him. So when he's giving us these commands in Matthew 5, 21 to 26, and we find ourselves falling short, how do we respond? When God shines a light in your heart this morning of some area of this text that you're not measuring up to, you're not following the way of Jesus in, how do you respond? Do we beat ourselves up? We cover up? Do we fix it? Or do we come to Jesus? That Philippians 2 passage is only possible if we have the mind of Christ, not your own mind. We cannot live this out without Christ. And here's what Christ has done to make things right. Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. But perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Christ pursued us while we were enemies to God in our sin. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 paints that picture well. We were dead in our sin. Walking contrary to God, Christ pursued us and died for us to make peace between us and God. He pursued his enemies. He died for his enemies. And he did it perfectly. But his work on the cross reconciles us and God, but it also reconciles us and others. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. He's talking about Gentiles and Jews, and and listen to some of this language he uses. He's talking to the Gentiles. He says, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel. You're strangers to the covenants of promise in the Old Testament. You have no hope. You're without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's reconciliation. Far off and brought near. How? By the blood, the death of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who made us both, who? Jews and Gentiles, he's made them one. Broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, there's our word again, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. 
thereby killing the hostility. He came, he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. You can keep reading three or four more verses and it's more of the same. Because of Christ's work on the cross, the ground is leveled for us. We now have real grounds to go reconcile with people because of Jesus. Kent Hughes, a pastor and writer, said, here again we see that the radical righteousness that Jesus demands is not merely a refraining from outward sin. It's not just don't murder. It's interior. And again we're made to see that our only hope is Christ who fulfilled all righteousness and offers it to us as a free gift. Jesus' radical demand is meant to drive us to him for grace. When we read this, don't murder, okay, I think I can do that. Don't be angry, don't insult, don't call someone a fool, don't harbor those attitudes. Lord Jesus, you know I failed this morning. Christ is not giving you commands so that he has a reason to slap you on the wrist when you disobey. He is giving you commands so that when you disobey, you might recognize how much you need him. Kent Hughes finishes that quote by saying that the radical demands meant to drive us to him for grace. Have you done so? Murderers are welcome. Do you find yourself failing at any point of this radical righteousness? Christ says, come. Now, when he says, come, he loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So there will be a lifelong journey and process of change and transformation, and he will change the desires of your heart. He will renew your mind so that you're thinking new thoughts. He'll renew your actions so that you're living in the way of Jesus, and you begin to look more and more like him. But it's important to remember that you're never at a place where you can't come to him in your failure and disobedience. You're never at a point where he will say, wait a minute, you you came to me last month, last year, last decade with this same text, struggling with this same thing. He will never say to me what I say to my kids. You ought to know better by now. It's not what Christ says to us. Christ says, I know. Why do you think I had to go to such great lengths to forgive your sin? He says, come, come again and again and again and again because you will never perfectly do this. The only one who could perfectly do this was me. That's why I came. And I want to help you begin to live this out, but I know you'll never get it perfectly. You probably have higher expectations for yourself than Christ does. He is well aware of your weakness. He is well aware of how much you fall short. And so he's giving you this command to say, here's my aim for you. I've already done it perfectly. I will help you do it. And you ought to never feel like you can't come to me when you fail. Two responses I've heard from when kids really, really, really mess up. Oh no, my parents are going to kill me. Or, oh no, I have to tell my parents. 
Christ has option two. He's not ready to kill you. He's been killed for you. He actually becomes the victim of the scribes and Pharisees because they couldn't get this. He actually becomes the one who receives the anger of the Pharisees, who receives not just their anger, but their murder on the cross so that we could have the possibility of living a life where we pursue reconciliation as righteous members of the kingdom of God. So Jesus reminds us in this text of one of the most obvious commands in the Bible, maybe one of the most well-known rules of all humanity, do not murder. But he doesn't stop there, and he takes it deeper down into our hearts from outer conformity to inner transformation. Because kingdom righteousness doesn't just refrain from murder, but it actually refrains from the inner attitudes that lead to murder. We can only do this through Jesus, who perfectly pursued reconciliation with his enemies, who perfectly received the anger and was actually killed on our behalf, and now who welcomes us every time we fall short of this command. And he says, come to me. I love you. I will work to change your hearts. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. I'm thankful for, God, what you're teaching me in your word. I'm thankful that you're teaching me that your desires for my obedience are, first of all, for my good, but also you're so patient with us, God. You know perfectly that We can't obey perfectly. But you still have this desire for us to grow in this. And God, when we look at this text, God, I see our culture, our world, my own heart written all over this, that it can be easy to refrain from murder, but God, it is difficult to refrain from some of these things. I've got to confess this morning that God, I, I am just, feel like I teeter on the edge of anger at times. I can have patience with certain big things, but God, it's small things that send me right over the edge. And Jesus, I need your help if I'm gonna have this kind of inner attitude. I need your Holy Spirit inside of me filtering the attitude before it comes out. Jesus, would you help all of us in that? Show us the ways that we're quick to be angry. And let us come to you. Show us the people that we're quick to be angry at. Give us a heart of compassion. Help us to see people as your image bearers. Help us to see them as exactly that, people. That every stranger we bump into is a person. Everybody that cuts us off on the road is a person. Every politician is a person. Every neighbor is a person. And they bear your image. Their life ought not to be taken physically and their life ought not to be taken in our hearts either. Jesus, we love you. Pray that you'd work this into our hearts and work this out into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.